Welcome, this is the Tea in the Clay. My name is Emilia, and this is a continuation of a podcast I did eight years ago called Radio Free Transburg that I did while I was living in Pittsburgh. I've moved since then, but I still want to do a podcast generally on the same topic of trans academic issues, trans research, and anything else of interest to me. This podcast was recorded in 2008 with Julia Serrano. This is just after her book, Whipping Girl, was published, and we talked about the issues that went into uh, the book and things that were happening at the time regarding trans issues and trans fitness issues. Since then, she's published another book called Excluded, um, Making Fitness and Queer Movements More Inclusive, and her book, Whipping Girl, came out for a second edition. So I really do hope to have her back to talk about how things have changed for her and for you know, trans feminist issues uh, since first edition of her book. Welcome back to Radio Free Transburg. Today I have an interview with Julie Serena. Julie is an Oakland, California-based writer, spoken word performer, trans activist, and biologist. Today we'll be speaking about her book, Whipping Girl, a transsexual woman on sexism and the scapegoating of femininity. Um, in addition, we'll also be talking about transfeminism and about the experiences of transsexual women in society. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Before we start, though, I do want to say that how really impressed I am with your body of work. Um, I mean, you're a biologist, you're a musician, you're a performer, a writer. You have the life that I think a lot of people would want to have. So I'm I'm very very impressed with your work. Oh, thank you. Welcome. Um, but let's start with um, your most your, most, your current project, um, Whipping Girl. Uh, can you tell me a bit about how that book came about? Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, basically, a lot of it came, it came from a couple different areas of things I was working on at the time. Um, one was I had gotten into writing, particularly doing spoken word, um, shortly after transitioning. And as I was doing spoken word and performing in front of queer and straight audiences, um, I found myself a lot of times being in situations where I was um, talking about my life and my observations and my perspectives and my pieces. And I found that a lot of times I was coming up against certain presumptions that the audience would have that essentially kind of reframe the work that I did as well as my identity in a way that I didn't necessarily, um, that wasn't necessarily where I was coming from. And so I was very much aware of a lot of the um, misconceptions and presumptions that people have about trans people in general, but also um, transsexual women in particular as that's where I'm coming from. And as I was working on a lot of that, I also um, had the experience of getting involved in the issue of trans woman inclusion in lesbian and women's spaces, um, specifically through um, Camp Trans when I attended in 2003. And um, I did um, some work as an organizer in 2004 and also I've done benefit shows, and so um, just kind of in working on that issue, I was coming up against a lot of similar presumptions 
that were um, there. I was working with the queer women's community particularly, and a lot of the presumptions I was finding were very similar to presumptions that were out there kind of in the mainstream about trans women. And through that work, it became really apparent to me that um, a lot of the issues that trans women face um, can't really be described very well in the way that we're used to thinking about transgender issues by saying that all transgender people, you know, transgender people are being discriminated against because we transgress gender norms. And, you know, the idea of transphobia is this kind of very generic thing that just happens to you if you break those norms. And what I really wanted to explore and what eventually turned into the book was the idea of um, how misogyny plays a role in shaping the presumptions that people have um, about trans women and other people on the trans feminine spectrum. And um, so that was pretty much how it started coming about. And then after that, once I had the idea, then it became easier to like look at particular issues and try to apply that um, to those situations. Who are you trying to target with the book? Who do you think, that, who did you write the book for? Um, that's a good question. I, um, I kind of imagined that there were kind of layers upon layers of people mm-hmm. who would be interested in the book. So in general, I, I, I tried my best. It's really difficult when writing about trans issues um, because it brings up vocabulary and, and concepts and stuff that the average person isn't familiar with. But I tried really hard to make it a book that anyone could just pick up for any reason, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And so I tried, I, I wrote it with the idea that anyone should be able to pick up the book. But of people who I really most wanted to reach with the book, um, I would say kind of the innermost uh, shell is trans women mm-hmm. um, and other folks on the trans female and trans feminine spectrums. Um, and for me, I found that uh, I found basically, I would say, as a, as a trans woman, I feel like when you're talking about a lot of uh, a, a lot of conversations that are out there regarding trans women, there's there's a lot that's out there if you search the internet on you know the issues of physical transition and kind of for people um, a lot a lot of ideas that are really geared towards people who are just um, maybe first exploring their their femaleness or femininity or who are in the process of transitioning, but then there's not a whole lot after that. Um, and I also feel that a lot of um, I, I feel that a lot of gender theory and and queer theory doesn't really work well for trans women. I feel like trans women are very marginalized by a lot of things that are put forward that have been put forward in the past in feminism and in queer studies. And so I felt like there was um, nothing for trans women. (laughs) And so that was kind of the intimate shell. And then after that, the shell that surrounds that, I guess, is um, the more general um, folks who are involved, not only in the transgender community, but in feminism and queer activism in general. And so I really hope that the, the book is appreciated um, in, in that circle as well, because I feel like um, basically all of the folks who are having these dialogues about gender and gender activism in different forms um, should be aware of a lot of these issues. 
can you quickly, um, for anyone who really listens to this podcast and wonders what the book is about, can you quick, uh, quickly describe the content of the book? Um, sure. Uh, so um, the book is a collection of personal essays. Um, some of them are a little more personal and some of them are a little more essayish. Um, but a lot of them um, are a mixture of both where I bring in some instances of my personal experiences, but I also, um, depending on, on what it is that I'm writing about, um, kind of bring in other types of research, whether it's like sociology or feminism or um, psychiatry, and just kind of address a lot of issues in there. And I would say that uh, a lot of... Um, I would say a lot of the pieces talk specifically about the role that misogyny plays in um, in trans women, a lot of myths and misconceptions that are out there about trans women. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I'll, you know, certain chapters might critique um, psychiatric depictions of trans women. Some might de- uh, talk about media depictions or feminist depictions of trans women. Um, and then there are a number of other chapters where I try to um, address other issues. One of the issues that comes up a lot um, in the book and in general um, when you're talking about gender is the nature-nurture debate or biology versus um, socialization, however you want to frame it. And um, I think it's very clearly a mixture of both, and I try to talk about that and try um, try to bring both biology and um, and social constructionist type of arguments to try to have a more holistic idea of gender in general and trans experiences. And then, um, and then a number of the, uh, um, I would say a number of the other essays um, specifically talk about um, the idea of cissexism, which is um, cissexism is derived from the word cissexual. Um, which is a term that's very much like the word cisgender, where there are synonyms for uh, non-transsexual and non-transgender. And so I talk about uh, basically the assumption that is prevalent in our society and even within a lot of uh, feminism and queer activism, the assumption that transsexual genders are less legitimate than uh, cissexual genders. And so a lot of the pieces talk about that, how um, transsexuals in general are depicted. So I would say that those are um, a lot of the main topics that are covered in the book. Right, right. Um, I just want to compare and contrast your experiences um, or your reading of the the social theory that's embedded into a lot of trans writings. Especially in regards to your experience of the biological science, kind of what's your impression, I guess, of, of much of the much of the uh, theory and um, that's is being used in used to talk about gender. I guess coming from a biologist's perspective, if that makes sure, sense. Sure. Yeah. 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 No, that makes sense. Um, so I find that, um, and it's, I find it understandable why a lot of people who are coming who are interested in gender and interested in turning over a lot of um, uh, prevalent and popular ideas about gender. I mean, I think there's this notion um, in mainstream society that um, gender 
is natural, and people use slight biology here and there to try to prove their points of why women are like this and why men are like that. And so I can understand why um, a lot of people coming from um, more progressive or more feminist positions um, try to make the counter-arguments, try to talk about gender as being this completely social artifact or social construction. Um, and I can understand why that happens, but I would say that um, I think because I'm a biologist, um, I'm very, uh, I guess I'm very aware of the way that a lot of that writing completely ignores biology. Mm-hmm. Um, and and to a lot of times when I'm talking to um, friends of mine who are feminists who um, who don't want to admit that there's practically any role that biology plays in creating men and women as as we see them. Um, whenever I'm in a conversation like that, one of the things that I'll talk about is, you know, I get really frustrated when I'm reading a biology um, study or a, bi- a book on um, gender and biology where people, like, just immediately start talking about, you know, hormones or chromosomes, and they make this presumption throughout the whole throughout the whole argument that biology leads directly to gender and gender expressions and gender identities um, without even addressing the role that social socialization might play. And I find that very frustrating, and so do most people who are feminists. Um, at the same time, though, when I read um, a lot of social constructionist theory um, and a lot of other um, feminist theories of gender, I find it just as frustrating that people will frame gender as this completely social phenomenon without even addressing at all um, the factor of biology. And I think that there's a lot of, I think there's this real fear in a lot of feminism um, and a lot of feminist writings um, about addressing biology. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's um, this issue where a lot of people equate um, gender essentialism with biology. Mm-hmm. And as a biologist, I find that to be um, really, uh, <laughs> really superficial. Because mm-hmm. um, actually, biology—anyone who studies biology, anyone who studies genetics, or has, has tried to study how biology might influence um, personality traits, whether they have anything to do with gender or not—know mm-hmm. that it's actually very complex, and it can't be boiled down to like genes that are just simply turned on and off and you know if they're turned on then you're feminine they're turned off you're masculine i mean um that's just not how things work things are very complex there's a lot of variation um and so that definitely shaped a lot of um you know my arguments in the book where you know i try to make the case that a biology doesn't equal essentialism and you know hormones can do very specific things, um, like for example, um, those of us who've transitioned from male to female have experienced an intensifying of emotions um, that that often happens when we switch from testosterone to estrogen. And folks on the uh, FTM spectrum experience the opposite phenomenon. Yeah, they have this decrease in intensity of their emotions. And 
I think that we should be able to talk about that, but at the same time acknowledge that hormones aren't the only thing affecting one's experience with emotions. And after all, there are a lot of um, there are a lot of men who are more emotional than certain women, mm-hmm. and a lot of women who are less emotional than certain men. So I think that there's I think biology creates all of this variation, and I think that there's really nothing to be afraid of. Um, and in fact, that variation actually helps make a lot of feminist points um, if one's willing to actually address them in that particular way. Right. And do you, do you see that your um, intrinsic inclination model um, as a way of incorporating the biology and the social construction? Yeah, and I put that forward. Um, for me, um, that actually captures a lot of what I was just talking about. Um, I guess the best way to start is if you're talking about virtually any trait um, that occurs in any animal, and in this particular case in humans, um, any trait that's a complex trait, which is most of the traits we talk about um, are complex traits, almost all of them uh, come about because of quantitative effects is the technical term. But what that just means is there are multiple factors that affect it. Mm-hmm. Um, and a perfect example, the best example of a quantitative trait would be height. So um, if your parents are tall, there's a very good chance um, that genetically you'll be taller rather than shorter. Mm-hmm. However, that's not the only thing that plays a role. If you, um, for example, during puberty, if you have testosterone in your system, that will tend to make you a little taller than you would if you had estrogen in your system. Mm-hmm. If you come from a country like the U.S. where um, food is fairly plentiful and um, basically you have um, the ability over several generations of people eating well, um, you tend to get bigger. So there are all these different things that happen that are environmental or, um, or genetic or hormonal that affect height. And so what ends up happening when you have this, um, when you have multiple traits affecting something, mm-hmm. instead of just getting like an on or off switch, you get a bell curve um, mm-hmm. that we've all probably seen before in statistics mm-hmm. where there's a certain average range for height and there are people who are exceptional who might be a lot taller than average or a lot smaller than average, mm-hmm. um, but you get this nice uh, bell curve that happens. Right. And I would say that with regards to most traits that we see as being gendered in certain ways, um, they fall um, along that spectrum. And so to use height as an example there, um, you could say that men um, on average are taller than women. And that's true for the average. But if you were to compare um, any given man with any given woman, um, there might be, it's very likely there's an exception there where the woman's taller than the man or they're the mm-hmm. same size. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because if you can imagine a bell curve, then imagine the second one that's um, slightly um, off to the side so that there are two bell curves that largely overlap, but the male curve is shifted a little taller than the female curve. And so that explains height, where most people fall into a certain range, and there is a, a difference in the average between men and women, but you can always find women who are taller than, given, than 
certain men and vice versa. And so if you think of something, for example, like femininity um, or maybe attraction towards men versus attraction to women, um, you would probably get very similar um, overlapping curves so that, you know, in general, women might be more inclined to be feminine than men um, and men more masculine than women, but you can always find exceptions to those roles. Uh-huh. And there are also a lot of us who tend to be kind of clustered in the middle who, you know, we have some feminine traits, some masculine traits. Um, and so basically that's how I think that's what I think is, is going on for a lot of these traits. Now, of course, there's also social factors where um, in a world where if you're a masculine woman or you're a feminine man, you're going to be marginalized, that tends to kind of exaggerate the curves to uh-huh. make them seem like they're more far apart. Um, uh-huh. It almost kind of erases the overlap that's there. Um, but that variation still exists. And the fact that that variation um, on some level, um, the fact that that uh, variation um, actually either precedes or supersedes socialization can be found in the fact that they're very young children who are really feminine boys or um, very masculine girls. And that defies, you know, both overly simplistic um, biological and socialization models for gender. So, um, so I think that, you know, obviously identities and um, certain gender expressions and everything are very socially based. Mm-hmm. Um, and socially constructed to a certain extent. And I think that that's fine, but I think we should also acknowledge that there are some intrinsic inclinations we have. And by that term, I just mean that um, an inclination is something that um, that predisposes us towards certain behaviors. So if, um, well, I'm trying to think of the best way to put this. I guess let's do um, subconscious sex since we're talking about trans stuff. I would mm-hmm. say that um, that most trans people have the experience of having a subconscious sex um, and understanding of themselves that they should be the other sex. Mm-hmm. And um, for most people, most people are typical in that that doesn't change for them. So in other words, most people, if you're born female, you are likely to have, um, you know, the average person who's born physically female is likely to have a female subconscious sex. Some of us experience um, um, just a knowing that we should be the other sex on some level. And so, A, that um, that precedes, um, to a large extent, social construction. So right now that I'm living in the U.S. in this year, I can call myself a transsexual, but if I was living in the U.S. 100 years ago, I might have that inclination, but I wouldn't necessarily have a name mm-hmm. for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so things so are, are basically the uh, society that we're in very much shapes how um, we come to, like, explain our inclinations. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I mean, I would call it an inclination that I was predisposed to and that I never asked for it, it defies both my biology and my um, socialization. And right. so um, 
that's, I guess, that's kind of a rough little summary of that right. model. Right. Actually, and I found that whole idea um, really very interesting. And when I first read your book and I read about subconscious sex, um, it took me a while before I got it. And um, just so you know, my background is, is sociology. Um, I have a PhD in sociology. Um, I do mostly social psych, psych, social psychological kind of things, symbolic interactionist. And the one thing that popped into my head is when you're when you start talking subconscious sex, is um, an earlier theory um, by Herbert Mead, the whole issue of the I and the me, where the I is this intrins intrinsic part of a person, the internal part, and the me is the, the socialized part. And how that kind of mirrors the you know, subconscious sex, which is the internal part, and then you have the uh, the the social part, which is the gender identity. So, mm -hmm. and actually, that whole idea just things just start to click more by adding that because, you know, just focusing on gender identity in my own work, I have been feeling like something is missing. But I really didn't not again being being much more uh, socially minded in terms of my perspective. I didn't quite bother to look inward, and just you mentioning it by allowing me to think about looking inward and seeing that okay, yeah, that does make sense. So um, actually, and this again, the whole idea I think is, is very interesting. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of it for me came out of um, my frustrations with the term gender identity, which is the one that people have historically used to describe that unconscious feeling of understanding that you should be the other sex. Mm -hmm. And for me, a lot of my problems with it was that I fall into um, a class of trans people who are kind of more and more common um, in that um, I didn't always know since I was like three years old that I should have been a girl. For me, it was a lot more confusing and it was something that I feel like I had to sort out. And the... I would say the kind of subconscious thoughts about being female were always there, but just at different stages of my life, I interpreted them differently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so that, you know, when I first, um, you know, like my first gender identity, I guess would be a boy, but I was a boy who often thought about not having a penis and who <laughs> had dreams in which I was a girl. And there's no word to describe that. And then eventually as I became more consciously aware I kind of thought of myself as a boy who wanted to be a girl. And then as I started reading stuff about, um, and this is before the use of the word transgender um, or the popularity of the word happened. So in the 80s, um, I learned about the distinction between transvestites and transsexuals. Mm -hmm. So I started calling myself a crossdresser. And then that kind of broke down. And I read, uh, read, uh, you know, Kate Bornstein and Leslie Feinberg, and I started calling myself transgendered, mm -hmm. and then I transitioned, and now I'm a transsexual woman. And so the idea of gender identity um, is great to describe how I'm consciously um, relating to my gender, mm -hmm. um, and that gender identity is very, very socially, um, very, very um, integrated with society. I mean, you know, just basically the language and the ideas and the categories that exist inform that but at the mm -hmm. same time there's something that I've had ever since I was a child that was just this subconscious thing that I can't mm -hmm. really 
um, put my finger on, but yeah. it, it was a, a, a self-knowing that was always there and kind of predated it. Mm-hmm. And I would say the same thing with like sexual orientation where, um, you know, people, you know, there are people who have been in same-sex relationships throughout human history. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Greeks, you know, had one way of thinking about it. And, you know, today, you know, or let's put it this way, like 30 years ago, you know, most people would see themselves as gay or lesbian. And then as the bisexual movement um, came, a lot of people um, maybe started reevaluating where they were, um, started to think of it as more of a spectrum. And now you have the term queer. Mm-hmm. And um, there are a lot of different ways to integrate your sexual orientation with your gender identity. So you could mm-hmm. be a femme, for example, which is kind of, you know, at the intersection of being queer and at the same time also being um, queer in a sexual orientation way as well as um, it having a lot of gender and gender expression is involved there. So, yeah, so I think it's important to um, to be able to have a word to describe the thing, that feeling that a lot of us have, mm-hmm. um, you know, just, you know, when we're teenagers and we kind of just have this feeling that we don't want and we wish it would go away, mm-hmm. um, but that's very real for us, whether that's, you know, an attraction to someone of the same sex or whether it's an understanding that on some level that um, you should be the other sex, um, et cetera. Well, at the end of the book, you look at trying to think about new forms of, of gender of gender activism. And, mm-hmm. and you talk about how... You, calling on people to focus attention on how gendered expectations and assumptions are forced upon people and that that should be um, the focus on activism rather than, you know, specific forms of, of, of gender and whatever forms of gender people can take. I guess the question is, uh, can you describe some concrete action that people can take that, you know, help in terms of focusing on, I guess, how uh, gender is, is coerced rather than focusing on um, proper ways of being a gender? Um, sure. Uh, and, and let me just kind of, since we're talking about the intrinsic inclinations, um, you know, in the book I talk about how um, I think that there are a lot of things, whether it's, you know, masculinity or femininity or androgyny, whether it's um, attracted at men or women or both, whether it's um, kind of understanding yourself, um, like having a subconscious sex that's male or female or this. Um, I think people fall all over the spectrum, and all of these are um, are independent of each other, so you can kind of have any of those combinations. And so I think that based on that, I feel that there's going to be, um, there's just going to automatically be this big diversity um, in the way that people express um, their gender, the way they identify, and in their sexualities. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I try to address um, in the last chapter of the book is um, the issue of how in a lot of gender activism, um, in the feminist movement, or in, in the queer trans uh, communities, how often they're are these like new gender norms that arise? Mm-hmm. So, you know, a lot of feminists, not all feminists, but a lot of feminists um, have believed that women should 
um, completely avoid femininity, um, that it was this trap. And so there, to be a feminist, there is a new set of gender norms that meant that, you know, you couldn't express yourself in very feminine ways. Um, otherwise, you are somehow enabling your own oppression. Um, in the um, certain segments of the trans and queer communities, um, it's common to hear people accuse someone else in their community of reinforcing the gender binary, um, either because they're heterosexual or they're um, often um, those accusations target transsexuals um, under the presumption that people transition from one sex to the other in order to attain gender normalcy rather than um, in order to um, feel more comfortable in our own skins. And so it really strikes me how um, basically these are just new forms of sexism. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you're talking about, you know, binary gender norms being bad, bad or heterosexist gender norms being bad, um, you know, why is that any different from being in the queer community and having, you know, you know, the fact that you appear gender typical rather than gender atypical, that that would be bad. You know? mm -hmm. <laughs> They're all gender norms. And right. so, and one of the things I talk a lot about in the book, I feel like in a lot of uh, gender theory that's been out there, um, people talk about, you know, gender as a, as a doing or gender as a performance. Mm -hmm. And we're really focused on how people are doing their gender. And to be honest, I think people are going to do their genders in very different ways anyway. And I think the mm -hmm. more important thing is the way that we are perceiving gender and the assumptions um, and interpretations that we make about other people's genders and their gendered behaviors. Right. So, for example, I would uh, I um, I differ from a lot of feminists in that I don't think that the problem is um, I don't think that like a problem I don't think that femininity expressions of femininity in and of themselves are a problem. I feel that what the problem is, is A, when other people force um, people to be feminine based mm -hmm. because of their expectations. So, you know, if I had expectations that women were supposed to be feminine and um, if I came across someone, a woman who is not feminine, if I criticized her for that, I would be being sexist mm -hmm. because... Um, you know, I was basically, my expectations, um, I was using them to kind of coerce the behavior. Mm -hmm. um, and so I don't think that femininity in and of itself is bad. What's bad is the presumptions that um, femininity is inherently weak or passive mm -hmm. or frivolous or that it only exists to appease men. Those are interpretations and assumptions. Right. Similarly, I, as like a transsexual, one of the things that I, I find um, most frustrating in a lot of conversations involving trans people, um, especially a lot of theories that are put forward by people who aren't trans themselves, mm -hmm. um, is that people talk about what transsexuals do um, when we transition, right? There's this obsession over what trans people do, where from my perspective, and I, I'm sure that most trans people, most transgender people um, in the hot, entire transgender spectrum would probably agree with this, that the 
problem, the source of the problem, isn't my behaviors, but it's the fact that um, every person who sees me automatically comes to a conclusion as to whether I'm male or female. Mm-hmm. And that all of a sudden creates all these expectations um, of how I'm supposed to act or or whatever. And they create situations where because, you know, people have assigned me a female sex in their minds that it makes it difficult for me to, you know, bring up the fact that, you know, when I was a kid I played Little League, right, without all of a sudden kind of defying that expectation. Right. And so... The, the um I guess the main gist that um I try to put forward is that um I think that the most radical thing that any of us can do is not perform our genders in in these really non conforming ways. I think the most radical thing we can do is to um stop projecting our own presumptions and interpretations of gender onto other people's um gendered bodies and behaviors. Mm-hmm. And I think something like that is something that um, we can take with and, and work with um, with six sexual women as well. Um, I mean, there there's been numerous occasions on the blogs where um, you know a woman is being taken to task by someone about her presentation femininity, either being uh, either way. But um, so the whole idea of again like, not putting our own baggage on people, I think, is, is something that we can work with other feminists about. I do see that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I mean, I think also I, I find, uh, I mean, just the, with regards to femininity, I mean, one of the things that I find, uh, I talk about it in the book, um, a lot of feminists who have very anti-feminine sentiments um <laughs> What's really striking is a lot of their assumptions about femininity are pretty much identical to the assumptions that many men make about femininity, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Um, and, you know, like the idea that, uh, for example, the idea that someone who's feminine is automatically weak or passive or or that someone who's being feminine is doing it to appease or attract men. In fact, that's what many men say when they assume that a woman who's dressed provocatively or very femininely is somehow asking for attention, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, she's kind of you know, soliciting male attention. And that's the same assumption that a lot of feminists make about femininity. Right. And so, you know, the problem there, I mean, anyone who's knows any femme dykes or trans women or a lot of uh, people who are out cross-dressers know that to express femininity, um, in our society, um, can be a very bold form of expression. And, you know, most trans women I know, um, and most some dykes I know, um, are not weak at all. You know, if we were weak, you know, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't have survived, you know? Um, and so the idea that femininity is expression of weakness is just ridiculous. (laughs) You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. like that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Mm -hmm. And, um, and yet it's, it just, um, it's just kind of like everywhere in the culture. Right. Uh, taking the discussion back to, to trans women specifically, you know, I guess to bring in the whole issue about how trans women are being pushed out of social space and being specifically, um, you know, Mitch Fest specifically, or perhaps in, in other social spaces. I mean, what can you think can be done to help open, um, open up social spaces to trans women? Um, 
so so that's a good question. <laughs> um, so I, I think uh, so. I only heard uh, part of what you said. So are you talking more specifically about queer women's spaces or just women's spaces in general? Or actually both. I mean, um, whether whether or not they may entail the same or different strategies, but they're both issues that I think I think trans women will be experiencing either way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, so, I mean, I guess there are a couple issues here. I mean, I, th- I think that um, for me, while they, um, the issue of like just, you know, say, for example, a women's space in general, like, for example, a women's restroom, which is in kind of a mainstream space, um, versus like going to some place like Michigan or um, some other women's only space that's um, predominantly involves queer women. Mm-hmm. I, I find that the presumptions I bump up to bump up against in those situations tend to be different. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that um, I think that a lot of the issue that um, in kind of more mainstream spaces, um, I think the issue a lot of times is, um, you know, what I would call cissexism, which is the idea that transsexual genders are fake, you know, you know that we're really, you know, the trans women are really men, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of the work there, I think, is, um, you know, I think a lot of transgender 101 type of work um, is, kind of uh, the type of thing that would probably be best geared towards um, addressing a lot of those issues, um, a lot of awareness of the existence of trans people and an understanding of who we are. Um, I would say in the queer women's community, um, I I think the queer women's community, there are a number of issues going on there that I think are somewhat different. Um, For one thing, I don't think um, in the year 2007, that one can say that, um, like, trans women exclusion policies at queer women's events has anything to do with an, a non-awareness of trans people. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, the, the T has been on LGB, um, tacked on the band of that acronym for at least 10 years now in most places. Um, the issue at Michigan... Um, you know, and in the queer women's community in general, um, you know, the issues issues of trans people and these discussions have been going on in full force since the 90s. Mm-hmm. So there, I think that um, the problems that are going on there, while maybe related, are are um, are different. And I find uh, particularly more disappointing, just because um, I don't think it's necessarily. Um, just a uh, lack of awareness or an ignorance issue. Mm-hmm. I think it um, goes to other sentiments. And if you want, I can. Do you want me to address those now? Oh, go ahead. Yes. Okay. Um, I think a one of the things that doesn't really get acknowledged very well is um, I I think most for in the issue of like say Michigan um, or other queer women spaces that don't really include that, you know, specifically exclude trans women, mm-hmm. often the presumptions are based on, um, or often the rhetoric is based on the fact that we used to be male, right? 
mm-hmm. in some capacity, whether it's a biological maleness or whether it's because we were socialized male. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that that rhetoric um, actually belies something that I think is a more stronger, more stronger in the attitudes, but not necessarily in the words, which is an anti-feminine sentiment. Mm-hmm. Um, if you think about like the lesbian community, which today's queer women's communities kind of evolved out of um, the lesbian community, and the lesbian community has historically um, defined itself in opposition to three main, um, three main things. Um, in opposition to men, mm-hmm. in opposition to heterosexuality, and in opposition to femininity in a lot of cases, mm-hmm. um, because femininity is often associated with heterosexuality for um, in a lot of lesbian minds. And so because of that, I think that one of the things that doesn't get talked about is um, the anti-feminine sentiment um, that gets put out there. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, a friend of mine who was uh, walking, uh, walking the line at Michigan. Um, this was back when I attended in 2003. And he was talking, and he, he's a trans guy, and so he was talking to these um, women going to the Michigan Women's Music Festival, and they were okay talking to him, knowing he was a trans guy. Mm-hmm. And then one of the women um, brought up about MTF. She's like, are there any MTF that can't trans? And he's like, well, yeah, of course. And she says, I'm surprised they would even want to go camping. Aren't they afraid they might break a nail? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that yeah. like really sums up a lot of the attitudes. I know a lot of people, um, a lot of the people in the queer women's community who are very, very um, negative attitudes towards femininity in general, and especially mm-hmm. um, when it's expressed by a trans woman. Mm-hmm. And this affects trans women, even if the trans woman in question is not feminine. I mean, that's the kind of attitude there. Um, the other thing that I, I, in my experience doing outreach with, within, like, um, the lesbian community, mm-hmm. I found that um, often when I bring up the issue of trans women, you know, you know, there'll be the, sometimes they'll bring up, like, male issues, like, you know, the penis issue or something. But it, you know, one of the things that most often gets talked about right away, right off the bat, um, and this is women who who don't like trans women, who harbor anti-trans women attitudes, the mm-hmm. first thing they start talking about is how trans women act like caricatures of women, you know, because they're so over the top with their makeup and the way they dress, and they're, they're, they parody women and thus insult women and everything. And if you look at, like, you know, if you read Janice Raymond's book, or if you read Mary Daly, what she said about trans women, <laughs> you know, that attitude is there in all of his mm-hmm. books. It's this really anti-feminine sentiment that's particularly, and I would say it's a misogynistic sentiment um, that's particularly geared towards femininity and particularly towards trans women expressing that femininity. Mm-hmm. And so I think that one of the first things that needs to change in order to address trans women exclusion in queer women's communities mm-hmm. is to acknowledge that it's um, an anti-feminine um, sentiment. And, mm-hmm. you know, even the idea that, like, it might have been okay 20 years ago for people to say, oh, well, trans women, you know, we don't want trans women here because trans women are really men. But I think today, being that trans men are are so 
um, not completely accepted in, in queer women's communities, but very much accepted, well more than, uh, way more than most trans women are accepted in those same spaces. I think that that, like, makes the the whole, you know, we used to be men card really suspect. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, right. If you had to give any advice to uh, to a young trans woman in regards to how they navigate the issue of inclusion, uh, what would you give them? Yeah, that's difficult. I mean, I guess in my own experience, um, you know, I personally I find this issue very frustrating, and I, I find it particularly frustrating because because um, I am a dyke, and so um, you know I can't necessarily just you know, avoid queer women's spaces, um, and I can't just, you know, I, I bump into people who harbor these sentiments all the time, and so that really bothers me. The one thing that, um, the one thing that I guess has been, um, the most, um, somewhat reassuring aspect of it all is that, um, I do have some really, really good allies in the queer women's community, um, I think more and more people are starting to realize that the issue of trans men and trans women are very different issues, um, and particularly with regards to this issue. And I think more increasingly people are starting to recognize um, essentially trans misogyny that, like, you know, basically the targeting, you know, policies that specifically target trans women but not trans men. Um, or people who specifically ridicule trans women and not trans men. And I think a lot of um, queer women are becoming more and more conscious of this. And some of them are really, um, some of the ones I've met are really, really um, awesome allies. And so because of that, I would say that my best advice is, um, is to seek out your allies. And um, I, I think that, uh, you know, I think it's very easy to get um, really bummed out by this issue, um, particularly because we have to be confronted a lot. And I think having strong allies by your side um, and also other trans women by your side, I think is really, really, um, is, is really the best thing to help get one through it. Can I ask you a couple of questions about bite size? Sure. Um, do you have a new album coming out anytime soon? Um, not right now. So basically, um, the the brief history of Bite Size is that um, we basically um, we got together in the late '90s. It was probably about ten years ago at this point, and um, for a while that was my main creative outlet. Um, and we put out CCDs um, and. You know, we, we, you know, played a lot of shows and toured up and down the West Coast. Um, and we basically had a third album that is pretty much all written. Um, but A, we had issues with regards to the first two albums we put out ourselves. Um, and that was fine. But uh, financially, for those, I don't know how many people out there have um, put out their own albums, but it's very expensive. And we also got somewhat burnt out, um, mostly on doing band business. Um, mm-hmm. We still love each other, and um, we played a show back in February, but that was our the first show we'd played in about two years. 
-hmm. And so we're kind of on a hiatus, essentially, Mm -hmm. um, and we might get back together um, or we might not, and we haven't really sorted all that out. Um, And, you know, I think all of us would be excited about having another album come out, but um, financially that doesn't seem like it's going to be feasible in the very near future. That's too bad. So, so that's <laughs> so that's the open-ended answer to to the question. Okay. Well, hopefully one day we'll, we'll see a third album. Uh, do you have any any new projects that you're currently working on? Um. Yeah. So. Um. Well, for one thing, mostly I'm. Uh, you know, most of the the things that I'm I'm focusing on are related to the book and promoting the book. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to be on the East Coast um, later um, in the summer, in August. Mm-hmm. Um, I have definite dates in Boston, New York, and Philadelphia. And I'll probably be doing uh, shows in Ottawa and Toronto. And I'm trying to get a DC show, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm also trying to get a couple West Coast dates in. So, um, so keep an eye out on the website and um, to find out about those. And then um, I'm also um, helping Michelle T. co-edit um, an anthology that's called uh, Transforming Community. I forget uh-huh. the subtitle off the top of my head. Um, that's um, It basically evolved out of a show that uh, she's curated um, for the National Career Arts Festival over the last several years. And it's kind of addressing the friction at the intersection of the trans and queer communities, um, the issues of people's identities, um, stepping on each other's toes and such. And so that's going to be published on Suspect Thoughts Press, and that's Mm -hmm. going to be um, hopefully before the end of the year, but we'll see. So that's kind of the other project that's afoot. Great. Well, again, I'm... I have to repeat that I'm so, so impressed and so thankful that you're out there doing this work. It is so impressive and so inspiring. Well, great. Thanks a lot. And also, also I want to thank you for your podcast because one of the things that uh, um, I mentioned earlier in this is that I feel that there are all these resources for trans women who are, are just starting to come out or just starting to transition, and there's so little out there for trans women who, um, and people on the trans feminine spectrum, um, so that people can have like intelligent dialogues mm-hmm. and and talk about the issues that face us um, outside of a really kind of you know superficial type thing. You know, there's there's you know there's very few outlets, and so I think it's really cool that you're doing this podcast. And, well, thank you. Um, yeah, so it'll definitely have a good effect. Cool. Thank you. I hope so.